Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander. And I'm Ravi Gupta. And this is Majority 54, the podcast for meaningful conversations that change minds, change votes, and win elections. Before we get started, we want everybody to know that on election night, so this coming Tuesday, we're going to do a live podcast recording. Uh, You can join us on YouTube Live at 11 Eastern. So that's this coming Tuesday to discuss election results so far. So like, you know, it's not hard to remember. It's election night, 11 p.m. Eastern. We are going to tweet it out. You know, it's not going to be hard to find. We're going to answer any questions. We're going to keep track of important races. Like I said, we'll be tweeting out a link to the live stream from our personal accounts, as well as on the Majority 54 Twitter. Uh, You can find the stream on your own. Uh, You can head to the Wonder Media Network YouTube channel. And then we'll also be releasing this live recording, the live recording we're doing on Tuesday night uh, on the Majority 54 podcast feed on Wednesday morning. So it's going to be hard for you to miss it. But if you want to see it while it happens and see us try to do this without the benefit of like editing, uh, then you should definitely tune in then. At the end of this episode... Uh, We have segments for Road to the Midterms, uh, conversations with Admiral Mike Franken, the Democratic candidate for the U.S. Senate in Iowa, and Eric Lynn, who is running to replace Charlie Crist in Congress in Florida in one of the most competitive seats in the country. With all that said, uh, Ravi, how you doing? You know, I've been better. I I have some kind of illness. It seems like I'm not alone. It seems like a lot of America is suffering from something, but I was completely knocked out cold yesterday. I didn't leave my bed all day and now have been... uh, rushing to catch up on podcasting today. So I think you're going to have to tell me what's happening in the world today. Uh, well, uh, we'll see how that goes. I, I uh, <laughs> uh, Before we get started, the, the one thing from my life that I must talk about is that I saw the most incredible youth baseball thing ever the other day. People can go to my Instagram, my Twitter to see this. It's gone viral, which is True's team played its first ever tournament. Uh, it was very exciting. And they actually made it to the championship game of the tournament on a triple play that they turned. It was it was crazy. The other team had the bases loaded with nobody out and only needed one run to tie, two runs to win. It was the last inning. And then these kids, these nine-year-olds that I've coached since T-ball turned a triple play. Uh, there was this great video of it. I tweeted it. And then uh, an account that does like uh, like broadcasting, announcing play-by-play, put play-by-play to it. And then I tweeted that out. And so these nine-year-olds did this incredible thing that has now been seen by like 100,000 people. And oh my God. Uh, it's the coolest thing. Situate me in the youth baseball league now. Is it wrapping up just like the This was the, the end of their season. Year? Yeah, this was the end of their season. Okay. They they didn't win in the championship game, but they but in their first ever tournament, they made it to the championship game by turning a game-ending triple play with the game on the line. It was insane. Oh yeah, just the coolest thing ever. So with that, we should talk some trash. You know, what better way to talk some trash by talking about 
you know, an oldie, but a goldie. I don't know how that expression goes. A golden oldie, uh, Stephen Miller. Uh, his company is running a, an ad in Georgia that is yeah, very Stephen Miller. When did racism against white people become okay? Joe Biden put white people last in line for COVID relief funds. Kamala Harris said disaster aid should go to non-white citizens first. Liberal politicians block access to medicine based on skin color. Progressive corporations, airlines, universities, all openly discriminate against white Americans. Racism is always wrong. The left's anti-white bigotry must stop. We are all entitled to equal treatment under law. America First Legal paid for this ad. Okay, Ravi, before we get into this, I also want to add uh, you know, the screenshot that Edie sent us, which has a mailer that is going out. It says, now hiring requirements college degree three to five years experience must be black or latin x and then it's got a big stamp that says whites and asians need not apply so it's made to look like it's an actual you know want like something from the one ads which it's not so ravi what do you think you know i've done a lot of reporting lately on this whole gop push to to recruit asian american families it worked really well for them in virginia for example in loudon county and in fairfax that asian part at least is not accidental obviously there you know the supreme court case that went in front of oral arguments on monday you know very much as part of a strategy to yeah i think stoke the frustrations by many asian american families out there on issues like education and how they're being classified so i think this is like a very like as as evil and as heavy-handed as Stephen Miller is, he's definitely pushing on something that is real out there in terms of sentiment within Asian American communities and a real vulnerability that Democrats have. I put this in the camp of evil and effective, probably, is where I put it. There is this two-step that they do where they're able to stoke hatred at certain elements of the identity and then at the same time, try to rally around, you know, rally members of the, whether it's a religion or an ethnicity. And that's what they're doing here. They're trying to say, hey, we're going to, you know, ring the jingoistic bells when it comes to China and, you know, for Chinese Americans and look the other way when there's all sorts of bigotry happening on the streets in the middle of COVID. But then we're going to try to rally folks to the polls in the name of, I don't know, like, I guess like meritocracy is their message to the Asian American community on this kind of stuff. And and I feel like they're saying that the meritocracy is under attack. The only answer to this kind of stuff is to communicate an inclusive message on race. The antidote to this isn't to play their game, which to be clear, this is identity politics. They're always accusing the left of identity politics. This is identity politics. This is white identity politics. And I think our answer has to be forward looking, inclusive message on race so that Anybody who's thinking straight will know that the Democratic Party is a welcoming party for people of all backgrounds. That transitions us directly into news of the week, which is sadly uh, the rise of anti-Semitism. Where do we even start with this? I mean, I think it feels to people like this started with Kanye West's comments uh, from a few weeks ago. And I guess that's where the latest round of this started. I mean, where, I, how do we even like pinpoint where the latest concern of rise of is, is that where I guess? It- yeah, I think this echoes the, the conversation that we just had about Asian Americans is like there was this moment where the governor, the gubernatorial candidate in Pennsylvania's wife said something that I've heard a lot in Republican circles, which is almost like this pro-Israel, anti-Jewish message 
So Mastriano, he has done some dog whistle stuff with his opponent in the governor's race, uh, Josh Shapiro, who is Jewish and who went to a Jewish high school, like a like here in Kansas City, we have the Hebrew Academy. So it's like the equivalent of that. And, you know, it was a nice private school and a religious school, no different than like the Catholic school I went to where I was the only Jew, right? Except it was a Jewish school. And so he keeps talking on the trail about this elite private institution, which isn't terribly elite, but is a private institution, it turns out. But he keeps going back to it, I guess, like keeps using the name of it, stuff like that. And so then he was asked during a press conference what he had to say about the people who said that he was being anti-Semitic. And then his wife steps up and says, we we so much love Israel. In fact, I'm going to say we probably love Israel more than a lot of Jews do. I have to say that. This is a thing that has been out there for years, like the idea that, you know, evangelicals in particular in the political space are very, quote unquote, pro-Israel. They back anything Israel does as far as its government and the decisions it makes, because with regard to the Middle East, like their number one thing is that Israel be there and continue in its current form. And that, in many cases, that has brought, not by any means a majority, but that has brought uh, some Jews politically over to the conservative side in the last several years. Here's the thing. I tweeted about this and I got a lot of responses from Jews who were like, that has been exactly my experience right on. But then I also got, you know, what you'd expect as far as a lot of anti-Semitic people saying really anti-Semitic things. Here's what I said. I said that, look, when someone says that, when someone who is not a Jew says that they love Israel more than a lot of Jews do, and that therefore they can't be anti-Semitic, it makes me think about the times when I was a kid when I would like go to sleep over at a friend's house and it would be like a good friend from school. And I remember being told just casually over dinner by one of my friend's parents at one point, like, well, you know, people who, who are Jewish, people who aren't Christian, like they're not going to go to heaven. They're going to go to hell. And just like casually, like, so, you know, we hope that you all. And and then the other times it would be. It would, <laughs> yeah, but what, yeah, then what's the statement after that? Like, they, they, you know, what, we hope that your family, what? you know, uh, that your family accepts Jesus, you know, like, like it was never like, Hey, news, you're going to hell and there's nothing you can do about it. It was more like, I feel like I should tell you, like, there's something that you and your family could do about it. And then, you know, that's the only, I think it happened more than once directly to me, but that's the only time I remember one of the parents saying it to me. The other times it was always like either on the playground or out at a play date, like a friend telling me that their parents had mentioned that like my family was going to hell because we were Jewish. And it was never, it was, it was a lot like this woman. It was never like Jews are going to hell. Jews are bad. It was usually like, oh, it's too bad because we like them so much. And we really, we love the Jews. It is too bad that they are going to hell. You know, that's, that's how it was. So it was like very confusing. And so when I hear somebody say this, when I hear somebody say, well, we actually love Israel more than a lot of Jews do. So we are not anti-Semitic. What it reminds me of is something that is not pointed out near often enough, which is that evangelical political activists who are solely focused on Israel as an issue, most of the time, it is because they believe in the rapture. And they believe that Israel has to be there and that the Jews have to be there to house sit Israel for the rapture so that when the rapture occurs, they can all go to heaven. Now, mind you, the Jews in this mythology are left behind. The Jews are not part of the rapture. The Jews in this mythology don't go to heaven. So my point is, that is not loving Jews. Like, that is being anti-Semitic. Like, that is expecting us to house sit for you for the rapture. 
let me just give you some words from our former president, Donald Trump. He said, no president has done more for Israel than I have. Our wonderful evangelicals are far more appreciative of this than the people of Jewish faith, especially those living in the U.S. And I, perfect. So, and so I think he put that's So that's a perfect example of trying to create an otherism, right? It's like it's like a dual loyalty trope that's been around forever, right? You know, I've been to Israel. Israel is not only not my main issue. It's not really even at this point the main issue when I consider like how my Jewish personal identity affects my political beliefs because. Honestly, like at this point, I'll tell you what number one is. It's rising anti-Semitism. It's, yeah. <laughs> you know, but, but yeah. if it, but if you were, if you put that aside, it's bigotry generally. Like I'm a Jew, like I'm part of the people in this country who marched with Dr. King, you know, like Jews went down to the South and they marched and like, like, so to me, like to be a Jew politically is to put fairness of people, especially non-Jews ahead of everything else. And so it's very much like when we talk about the way the Democratic Party often misses its messaging when it comes to the Hispanic community, because they think it's all about immigration. They think that all anybody in the Hispanic community cares about is that as a Jew, like I can tell you whether or not like what your position on Israel, like it's a factor, but like I am much more concerned about whether or not you want to like burn books and whether you want to, you know, whether you stand against the things that Dr. King, for instance, stood for. If we're trying to reenact what the sort of the room of evil geniuses and and everybody, you know, of, I would say of lower cognitive profile in the Republican Party, what are they sitting around and and thinking when they're strategizing about this kind of stuff? I think with, when it comes to the Asian American conversation, the Hispanic conversation, uh, the Jewish conversation and the black population, they're saying we don't need a majority. We just need to peel off a couple percentage points. And I think nowhere more is this more dangerous than when it comes to the gentle stoking of tension between certain members of the black community and the Jewish community. Mm -hmm. So when Kanye said all the crazy shit that he said recently, there was just this very subtle set of moves that people were making, including this guy. What was the guy that you were going back and forth with Jesse, on Twitter that Jesse night? Jesse Kelly, I think, is his name? He Yeah, Jesse Kelly, some right-wing personality, I yeah. guess, on uh, who has a podcast. And he did this very interesting move where he said, oh, it's a mental health thing, he said at first. And then he, then he said later on in his tweets to you, but this is also a longstanding conversation that's been going on between the black community and Jewish community. So I'm like, well, wait, what is it? Is this is this the rantings of somebody who's not mentally stable or is it a legitimate conversation happening between two communities? Because when we get outraged about it and we're like, look, Kanye has a huge platform. He's backed by a bunch of corporations. Tucker Carlson is picking and choosing which Kanye clips to play. Then they'll be like, no, but he's just mentally ill. They'll then you know, wink at the what they call a legitimate conversation going on between the same two communities because they benefit from that. And so this is where I'm most concerned. They badly want to divide traditional progressive coalitions, right? That's something that they've been interested in for a long time. And really, like the whole idea that there's a rift between the black community and the Jewish community in America, it's really all born out of uh, Louis Farrakhan's rhetoric about Jews which was born for him in this like warped version of anti-Semitism that he put into like the black nation of Islam stuff. And then they just use that as they take Louis Farrakhan and they just say, oh, look, see, blacks and Jews have always had this rivalry. This When in reality, like 
it's always been an alliance. It's always been it's always been the two sides fighting for the same cause. But you can see why it's in their interest to do that. And so when when Kyrie Irving uh, promotes something anti-Semitic, when Kanye West says something anti-Semitic, I mean, it is in their interest to put that up and elevate it and have everybody see it and try and make that into a real thing when it's really not. What all of this is about is about creating separateness. It's about creating the idea that, uh, you know, the Jews, these like elites, which is, you know, they're trying to use them in tandem. They're not like us, which is the same thing they, they do with, you know, these liberals. They're not like us. These whatever it is, they're not like us. And, you know, this, that's what this is. And, and when I think back to, you know, what life was like in the middle of the country here in Kansas City for my grandfather, like there was a separateness. That's what they created here. Like, like my grandfather, Ed Kander, was literally named by the paper when he was in high school as the top athlete in Kansas City. And he told me that uh, during the week, like that was great. Like he was, he was the cool kid at Westport High School, you know, the public high school where he went. And on the weekends, he never got to hang out with any of his friends because as he put it, he never saw the inside of one of his teammates' homes because he was, on the weekend, he was a Jewish kid. Now, my grandfather didn't like relay this story to me as like this hard scrabble upbringing. It was more just like a, a factual conversation about what it was like. But then like, my dad experienced anti-Semitic bullying uh, in school and when he went to middle school. All I experienced was like kids in my middle school, they didn't really know what a Jew was, but you got to pick out something to haze or, or bully other kids about. And so I had a big nose. They heard that was so, you know, I got in a couple fights over that. But I, again, it was confusing because I was like, I don't really know what a Jew is, but I know I'm it. And I know this kid doesn't like me because of it. So I guess we're going to fight. I wasn't, you know, Brendan Fraser in school ties. I was literally just going to ask you, your grandfather yeah. sounded But he like kind of was. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He kind of was. And so my point is like, it's not that long ago that they effectively created this kind of separateness, this thing that says, well, they're different. And what it really is, is about making people not fully American, right? That's what they do with the black community. That's what they do. I mean, that's the idea, right? That's where the whole expression, you know, real Americans, right? That's why when they say working class too often, they're just, they're talking about white people. The reason I find that to be so concerning and why it has to be addressed is because that's literally like what they do in Russia. That's what they did in the Soviet Union. You know, Diana's passport, her papers, her, her parents' papers when they lived there, they didn't say Russian. They said Yevrets, which means Jewish. That's what we're worried about. That's what we fear. And so that's what I hear when I say people, when I hear people say, you know, well, we actually love Israel more than a lot of Jews. So we're not anti-Semitic. My sense is this is just the beginning. You know, this Kyrie thing. To me, it explains why Kanye, like regardless of whatever try to attempts people try to make at armchair diagnosing his mental illness and saying what is and isn't part of his mental illness. By the way, Ben Shapiro in one tweet talked about how, oh, I welcome his views on abortion, but you know, I condemn his views on anti-Semitism. I'm like, that's not how it works. You guys can't play this whole thing that's like he's but it's a bipolar episode, yada yada. But then you're gonna pick and choose what you like that he says. That's not how it works. The platforms that these people have are so huge that it's no longer true that like a good Jake Tapper segment is going to do the trick. Like this is going to be more of a street fight. We started this episode with the ad that rips away all euphemism and just says, you know, there's racism against white people, right? Like that's where we've gotten to. So the distance between where we are right now and an ad against somebody like Josh Shapiro that says, you know, he doesn't believe. Jesus Christ is the son of God. 
is not a short distance. I have to do whatever I can to not allow us to get two years from now to where 2024, there's polls that say 40% of Republicans say that Jews are not as American as Christians, you know, because that doesn't feel out of the realm of possibility at all to me. And no, it feels almost likely at this point. And that's, yeah, that's and this scary. Is, and this is where and I, I'm, I don't, I don't mean to sound harsh here, but the people like Ben Shapiro, they've chosen which identity matters more to them. And for him, he's, he's more Republican than he is Jewish. And I know I'm not Jewish and it's not for me to say that, but it is, I am saying it like when, when he chooses to, to allow Candace Owens to continue to flack for Kanye and where he, he so minusculely de-emphasizes the anti-Semitism on his own platform. Where he's like, oh, yeah, that's bad versus like well, if Ilan Omar says something not even remotely as anti-Semitic as what Kanye said, he'll we will talk about thousands of words and many videos on the Daily Wire. That's to me is like he's a Republican before he's Jewish, before he's an American, before he's a Democrat. Well, that's the thing is like it's not to me to be a, a Jew is not about being a Jew before you're something else. It's about just being a human. It's about being humane. I, you know, one of the things that for me has always made Judaism, at least in the way it is in my life, different is I, at a young age, I had a rabbi say, describing this concept of tikkun olam, which is sort of repair the world, is that it's not your job to make the world more Jewish. It's your job to make the world better. And so my point is, is that Ben Shapiro, no matter what his religious or ethnic background, is putting being Republican above being human. And, and to me, I, the way I was raised in the Jewish tradition I was raised is it's about, you know, it doesn't have to be anti-Semitism. It could be anti-blackness. It could be anti-anything. You're supposed to fight it in the same way. And so that guy, Jesse Kelly, that I got in the argument with, in his original tweet that started all this, he was literally, he said, you know, I don't have a dog in the fight. But look, you Jews, he was basically like, you Jews are making it worse by complaining so much. And it was like, it was like that old thing of, you know, first they came for them first, they, then they came for the Jews and then they came for me and there was no one else to stand up. It's like when he read it, it just ended at, and then they came to the, for the Jews, but you know, I wasn't Jewish, so I didn't do anything. And then he like, he thinks that's the end of it because he's, because <laughs> he's like, I don't have a dog in the fight. And my argument is like, see, but you do have a dog in the fight. It doesn't matter whether you're a Jew. Just like when George Floyd was murdered, I don't have to be black or live in Minneapolis to have a dog in the fight. With that, we're going to put a pin in this conversation because we are speaking to Eric Lynn in a few minutes, and it's something I know he'll have something to say about. But let's pivot, Ravi, to a little more standard political topic. So we've been talking recently about how we get our news. And if you subscribe to WMN Politics Plus and you heard our bonus episode where we talk about where we get our news and no secret to listeners of this podcast, I spend many hours a day consuming news, both for this podcast and for my day job. And obviously that's not realistic for most people, which is why we are excited about Ground News. This is an app and website that shows you all the different news outlets and how they're reporting on the top stories of the day. So you can quickly compare coverage. Every story comes with a bias bar showing the distribution of reporting from the left center and right leaning publications. And by simply swiping between the headlines in the app, you'll start to notice how powerful the framing is, where a single word or detail can influence our, our understanding of a story. Ground 
News is a fantastic tool to stay up to date on the latest news and to recognize not just where we're divided, but where we might be able to find some common ground. So go to ground.news slash M54 or click the link in the show notes to get 15% off any subscription for as little as $1 a month. That's ground.news slash M54. Look, nobody really wants to talk about life insurance because when you talk about life insurance, you're like talking about you or a loved one dying. And here's my argument as to why you should get life insurance if you don't already have it. It's if that horrible thing happens in the midst of the horribleness of you no longer being there or your loved one no longer being there for you or for them to have to worry about money in the short term in in an increased way. Why make everything even worse? Yeah. And I think it's important to note that everybody, when they think of life insurance, thinks about like a a traditional profile of a person with 2.5 kids, a dog and a cat living in the suburbs, et cetera. But we all have somebody who depends upon us. And I think it's really important to look out for them in the event that something traumatic should happen. Policy Genius gives you a smarter way to find and buy the right coverage for you and your family. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $17 per month for $500,000 of coverage. And so your loved ones deserve a financial safety net. You deserve a smarter way to find and buy it. So head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. We are less than a week out from the midterm elections. The you know, this 538 model that I keep talking about has now, you know, we went from the point where Denny, De- Democrats were 60 plus percent odds of keeping the Senate, and now we're below 50 percent. So at least according to their model, we're less likely to hold the Senate than we are to hold it. So this inevitably leads to certain kind of journalism that we're used to, this sort of Democrats in disarray narrative. There was a piece in the New York Times which talked about, talked to lawmakers and strategists who Uh, had a lot of critical things to say about the Democrats' messaging. I would say the overarching point of the article is they're saying that there was no national message in this election from Democrats. What say you? This is like one of those games, those football games where there's not much defense. And so you kind of feel like, like you and I have been to some of these games, like between the Bills and Chiefs, where you, you feel like, you know, whoever has the ball last is likely to win. Because yeah, like a few months ago, it felt like, boy, Democrats don't have a, a cohesive message. Then the Dobbs decision came down and the Democrats had a very cohesive message. But even before the Dobbs decision, it was like, well, inflation is a huge problem. Democrats don't have a cohesive message on that. Republicans do. They're talking about inflation and gas prices, right? And then inflation became not quite as bad. Gas prices came down a bit. Dobbs happened. And all of a sudden, now the Democrats had a cohesive message. And then it went back where the media cycle and everything and the outrage about Dobbs just naturally through time because things move so quickly now, it started to fade for people. And then gas prices went up a little bit. Inflation became an issue again. And and then what they always do, this is an example where they actually did seize the conversation. The Republicans pivoted right into crime and immigration. And that's sort of where we are now, right? And now it's like, well, do we try and go back to talking about abortion or do we talk about the economy in terms of what we're trying to do for for like the average American versus what they are? And because we don't know which way to go, it feels like we don't, we don't have a cohesive message. But like if the election were two months ago, everybody would be like, wow, the Democrats are completely, they're all on the same message, but it was more circumstantial. So it's like, right. where were these people, the people who were criticizing it two months ago, they weren't like, hey, here's what's going to happen. We better pick 
between abortion and an economic message right now. They weren't saying that. We, as we meant, talked about often, whenever you hold the presidency, it's going to be a tough year in the midterm elections. And often you want to almost help the electorate forget that you keep the presidency, which is essentially what we've been trying to do here. In a weird way, Biden has almost done so much that it's hard to be like, oh, is it the student loans thing? Is it the semiconductor bill? Is it, you know, his response to COVID? Is it, you know, you just go down the list and you're just like, wow, this guy actually did a decent amount of stuff. But it's hard to put that into one narrative. But also, it, it also probably is unwise. Like, voters don't like Biden right now, by and large, especially the swing voters that we want. And so trying to remind them of Biden, no matter how much he's gotten done, is probably a fool's errand. So then what are you left with? Well, you're left with trying to whip up, in my estimation, like genuine fear about what the other side is going to do, whether it's to elections or to reproductive freedom, uh, et cetera, which I think is unfortunately the smartest thing to do because, you know, as much as we 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 might hate it, like moving people through either positive or negative emotion is usually pretty effective. And then second is like pick and choose a couple of things that are forward looking, but you can't really throw the kitchen sink in it. And often what you're going to emphasize is going to differ depending on which district you're in. And in the absence of a major national figure, that's kind of just where you are. If I had to write a prescription for what the democratic message should be all the time so that it could be somewhat immune to, you know, the ebbs and flows of the election cycle and of, of the news cycle, it would be something that I firmly believe and that I think is true all the time, which is Republicans are for rich people. And I think that everything falls into that, right? Republicans are for rich people, which is why corporations get away with all of these things that you can't get away with. Republicans are for rich people, which is why Herschel Walker can come out and say he's completely against abortion in all circumstances, knowing that next time it becomes an issue, he'll figure out a way because he's got the means to make sure that uh, that, that is available to somebody in his life. I think if there's a unifying message, it's always been that one. Yeah, I think Tim Ryan has done this the best, is where she marries that Republicans are for the rich people with a forward-looking message that also dovetails with who Tim Ryan is. He's somebody who very genuinely has roots in the state, whereas Vance's uh, roots are very tenuous. But he also is able to flip it around and say, all right, this guy is a venture capitalist, my opponent. So it's very like, it reminds me a lot of the Romney 2012 versus Obama to be like, hey, this guy is not one of us. Mm-hmm. And also to say the Republican Party is is not only for rich people, but it's also a cult of personality that revolves around one particular rich person. Right. And what Ryan has done effectively, whether he wins or loses, which he probably will lose, but he's got a shot and he's dramatically outperforming the Democrat who's running for governor, in part because he uh, is able to take what Vance thinks is an asset, which is Trump's backing, and turn it into a weakness and say, look at this guy. He's got no dignity. Like whether you like Trump or not, you don't like people who, you know, grovel at the foot of somebody else, right? You shouldn't trust that person. Even if you like the person that they're groveling at their their foot of, right? It's almost like if you're in high school and there's like the popular kid and then there's the hangers on. Like you may even like the popular kid, but the people who are just, you know, salivating over that person's attention don't present well. And that brings us to our extended road to the midterm segment, uh, where we are going to talk to first Eric Lynn, and then after that, uh, Admiral Mike Franken. Please enjoy these two conversations. 
We're joined by our friend Eric Lynn. Eric Lynn is a national security expert, small business owner, community advocate, and Pinellas County native who is running for Congress in Florida's 13th district. Eric was one of the first staffers to join the Obama campaign and subsequently served his country for six years at the Pentagon as a senior advisor to the Secretary of Defense. Also, we went to law school together. So welcome, Eric. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Jason. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to see you and uh, speak with you and good to speak uh, with, with you, Ravi. It's been too long since we've caught up, so I'm glad we have the opportunity to do it here. But yeah, Eric, uh, Jason, I don't know if you know this, but Eric and I were on the fundraising team together for Obama back in the day, so we should travel the country. Long time. All right, well, okay, Eric, we're talking about the, the rise of anti-Semitism on the right. I bet you might have something to say about this. I do. I mean, let me take a, uh, a brief step back from 30,000 feet to tell you that I, I do have a very strong views on this issue. And it is also, uh, unfortunately, uh, anti-Semitism has played a role here in my race for Congress as I run to represent uh, my hometown of St. Petersburg and the Tampa Bay area here in Florida, just to give you an overview in this race where uh, I'm running as the centrist moderate Democrat who worked at the Pentagon and with the military for years. My opponent is in this race running as an extremist. She's actually called herself an extremist. And part of her extremism is she recently spoke at the Turning Point USA conference where Nazi flags were waved uh, out front of the conference. And I condemn the waving of Nazi flags in my community, as and anyone should uh, condemn. Bold, bold stand. You know, <laughs> isn't it sad that that does feel like the thing you had to condemn? Uh, like what the heck? Sadly, sadly, I called on all to condemn as well. And uh, my opponent, Luna, who was speaking inside uh, while the flags were being flown, refused to condemn it or to say anything about it. And uh, to your point, Ravi, uh, she is trying to uh, try and pin this and label the people outside waving Nazi flags on uh, left wing folks that are not actually supporting a Turning Point USA when they were all there supporting Turning Point USA. Uh, and that's how the press documented all of it. Now, to your question, anti-Semitism is on the rise. It's on the rise, unfortunately, and extremism on both sides. My opponent's great example of it on the right. She brought Marjorie Taylor Greene here, and they continue to espouse their anti-Semitic views. Everyone remembers Marjorie Taylor Greene believes that that uh, all, all Jews uh, have our space lasers in space, uh, trying to uh, work on those uh, very serious issues. I forgot about that. And one. then on the left, uh, we have folks like Kyrie. Uh, we are seeing this raise its ugly head, and sadly, um, many extremists on the right want to try and pin it on people on the left. Uh, and unfortunately, people with large followings like Kanye and Kyrie move forward on on their hatred and anti-Semitism and not enough people speak out. Jason's been engaging in, in the right debate and conversation, which is if you believe in speaking out against hatred, if you speak out against racism, which we all should, if you speak out against homophobia, which we all should, then you should be speaking out against anti-Semitism. And for those who continue to remain silent in the face of anti-Semitism, well, it rises on all sides. And uh, unfortunately, here in Florida, it's rising on the right and extremists like my opponent, uh, Anna Luna, in this race. Not enough people are speaking out about it. I don't want to miss the opportunity to have people learn about your race because it's one of the most important in the country. So I know, you know, Charlie Crist was the first Democrat to represent that district since the 1950s. And now you're running to replace him as he runs uh, for governor. So let's talk about how the district is made up, the challenges that presents and, you know, what your path is to keeping the district blue. I am running in my hometown of St. Petersburg in this race where Charlie Crist is leaving it to run for governor. The district was 
redistricted illegally by partisan gerrymandering and racial gerrymandering by the governor of the state of Florida, Ron DeSantis, after the Republican legislature and Republican Senate passed their own redistricting maps that were going to make the district a little bit more Republican. And the governor came in in an unprecedented move, an unprecedented illegal move, and vetoed their map, drew his own map, and insisted that his Republican colleagues who had already passed their own map put his map forward. There are lawsuits against this map. Unfortunately, the judiciary and all of the courts that are hearing these cases have said they will not rule until after the election. So the district we now have went from a district that Joe Biden won by two points to a district that Donald Trump won by six points. Effectively, Ron DeSantis spotted my opponent eight points. Jason and I are both big baseball fans, Ravi, and I, and I think you are as well. I coach my nine-year-old son's baseball team. And the way that I described the map to my nine-year-old son was normally we start at the top of the first zero, zero. But based on what Ron DeSantis illegally did to this map, we're starting the top of the first six, zero. And we need to score seven more mm. runs than them uh, instead of one more run than them to win. What did your nine-year-old say? Uh, he said, that doesn't sound fair, daddy. <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought. And, yeah. and, and I said, I said that's right, but we better bring out the big bats. There's, you know, this piece in the New York Times about it's essentially a Democrats in disarray piece, and it goes through and it interviews a bunch of Democrats around the country. It talks to, interestingly, both Alyssa Slotkin, a candidate that I've worked with before, I'm sure you know her, where she says the truth is Democrats have done a poor job communicating our approach to the economy. And fascinatingly, in the next paragraph, they say Bernie has his issues too. And I guess there's a part of me that's like, yeah, sure, look, we don't have a national message and that's trouble. But then one of the reasons why we don't have a national message, perhaps, is that we have to have a party that includes the Alyssa Slotkins of the world and the Bernie Sanders of the world. You know, like it's almost a puzzle that might not fit together so neatly. What are you feeling on the ground? Like, are you feeling the lack of a national message or are you actually benefiting from the lack of a national message? Uh, no, great question. And uh, I should state from the outset that Alyssa Slotkin is a good friend of mine. We served together uh, in the Secretary of Defense's office at the Pentagon. While we're down at the top of the first six zero, the most recent public poll that was published in Politico yesterday, we are now tied in this race 46 to 46 with one week to go. So uh, our messaging is working and resonating with the moderate folks here in Pinellas County. I want to govern from the center. I believe that we have opportunities to help the veterans and certainly our, our large military uh, contingency that lives here because McDill Air Force Base and CENTCOM and SOCOM are 15 minutes from here. And that messaging has resonated with Democrats, with independents, uh, and with Republicans. And just to put a dot on the point about Congressman Bill Young, who served here for 40 years, his Republican widow came out last week with a group of seven elected Republican officials in the community and endorsed me for Congress. This was her closing statement. I am a proud Republican and I'm endorsing Eric Lynn for Congress because Anna Luna is too extreme. That type of messaging has been really helpful that it got the Independent Party of Florida to endorse me as well. Messaging that I have found in this district that works is talking to people about wanting to work across the aisle wanting to work together, want to solve problems, and to get rid of the partisan bomb throwing that my opponent, Anna Luna, and her extremist views and her friends like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who have come here to campaign for her, continue to use. You know, what I think is interesting, Eric, is like it used to be primarily that if you said somebody was moderate, it meant 
that they held a fair amount of views that might also be held by people on the other side or might be much closer. And and there may be some views that you have that are like that. But I mean, I know, for instance, that you're, you know, dedicated to the right to choose. I know that the NRA is not endorsing you. Right. Right. And that's the kind of thing that it used to be when you describe somebody that way, you know, for right or for wrong, that it meant that they had crossed the aisle on a bunch of issues and that they were trying to pick off voters by saying like, hey, look, we actually agree on this and this. And the way our politics have changed, I think what it means is much more what you just said, which is that it's not solely rhetorical, but it is rhetorical. It is about rhetoric in the sense that a moderate uh, member of Congress at this point, whether they be a Republican or a Democrat, I think what that has become a proxy for is I am going there to accomplish things. It, it, I don't think you mean, well, I hold some views that frankly are Republican. I think what you mean is, is like, I'm going there to get stuff done and, and uh, meet people in the middle. Is that fair? Or? I, I think that's completely fair. Everything that you've said is is fair and accurate. I'll give you one example. People uh, try to say this is a Republican view, but this is not. And I know you will you will uh, have your, your uh, blood boil when you hear this accusation as well. But people say, well, Eric Lynn stands up as a strong supporter of veterans, and that's a really Republican issue. And I say to them, absolutely not. Although when I talk to voters, they say, oh, you're a moderate because you're pro-choice and you support veterans, which is a Republican issue. I said, no. Eric, I really appreciate you spending the time with us. Where can people find info about your campaign? Where can they support the campaign, send money and that sort of thing? Thank you very much. Uh, EricLynnForCongress.com. EricLynnForCongress.com is our website. Uh, please go there. You can see more about my positions, uh, obviously, there, and you can contribute to the campaign. I will tell you, uh, again, as we close, uh, we are six days out from this election. The most recent public poll published in Politico has us tied 46 to 46. So any support uh, that you can offer would be much appreciated. And we are feeling confident about pulling this this race out. We have those seven runs uh, coming. We need we need batters like uh, like Jason Canada to come up to the plate. I appreciate it. Thank you, man. Uh, <laughs> Robbie, great to, great to speak with you as well. Good to Absolutely. see you, brother. And uh, look, right. you're still a good guy, even though you're on a podcast with Jason. <laughs> <laughs> hey, thanks, Eric. Good luck, man. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Good talking with you. So, Jason, I haven't been able to keep some food down for about day and a half now, but. One thing I experimented with yesterday is we call Athletic Greens AG1, we've called it on this podcast, nutritional insurance. So I was like, let me test this out. So I you know, couldn't eat anything, but I made myself Athletic Greens. I was able to keep it down. And so I literally used it as my nutritional insurance yesterday. So I wouldn't just wilt away and float off into the atmosphere. Well done. And you're looking, you're looking good. Unlike, unlike AG1, oh, you are you. not looking green. I mean, you're, you're looking, you know, so <laughs> it's, it's treated you well. So what is this stuff? With one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source, superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. It's a special blend of ingredients that support your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging, all the things. Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com majority. Again, that's athleticgreens.com majority to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. All right, Jason, I'm recording from my apartment today because I've been sick and you could probably see in my background, I got some chairs back there. They're from Allform. I got a couch next to me from Allform. This is a company founded by our friends over at Helix. I've had this stuff here in my apartment and in my office for a greater part of the year and it's my favorite pieces of furniture. 
Yeah, same in our house. Uh, it, the, our little blue couch that sits right at the edge of the kitchen. Uh, it's like a little sofa is our is our favorite middle of a meal. People tend to float over there and lay down and people meaning true. And we're like, hey, man, come on back and finish eating. It is a great uh, piece of furniture. So if getting a sofa without trying it in the store sounds a little risky, you don't need to worry. Allform offers a 100-day risk-free trial. That's more than three months. And if you don't love it, they'll pick it up for free and give you a full refund. Allform's durable, high-quality sofa is so well-made that it offers a lifetime warranty option. If your sofa ever breaks down, you can repair or replace it forever. To find your perfect sofa, check out allform.com majority54. Allform is offering 20% off all orders for our listeners at allform.com slash majority54. Step up your sofa game today. We're excited to welcome to the show Admiral Mike Franken. After serving in the United States military for over 36 years, Admiral Franken is trying to unseat Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley. I mean, 36 years, not, not bad, Admiral. That's a ways, that's a while, and like, that's a lot of ocean. And then you like love Iowa so much, you're like, I'm going back to the very middle of the country. Well, you know, the, uh, the rolling fields of corn and the like and waves, there's not a lot of difference. So that's why there's a lot of us Midwesterners that are schlepping around the Navy and, and doing, uh, doing Army work as well. I spent 13 years in joint jobs, so I know your line of work. Uh, look, we're excited to have you here. We've uh, J.D. Shulton, who's your political director, is a friend of the show and also has been, you know, saying to me over the last several months, like texting me like, hey, look, this is a dark horse race. Like, we're going to make this a race. And I'll be darned if that hasn't happened. I mean, Ravi, tell us about the most recent polling here. Well, I just know it's it's pretty tight, you know, and it's tighter than you'd think based on the lack of attention that the race is getting. I saw a poll that had it at three points. There may have been one since then, but I think that was the Des Moines Register, which is the gold standard. How are you seeing this race? How close is it really? As Lawrence O'Donnell said the other night, we were chatting that uh, whenever the incumbent is is hovering right at like 46%, it doesn't ever bode well for them. And, you know, we worked out a strategic plan going back a year ago saying, okay, this is what we need to do. This is how we, this is how we need to execute this plan. And it's, it's, it is, you know, this is why we have the the military parlance of things like campaigns. We worked the edges. We stayed true to ourselves. We said, hey, listen, let's not be a traditional politician. Let's just be true to ourselves. And my sense is that we're going to uh, win in this end game and working hard to make it so. When I think of people like Grassley, like my assumption is, oh, hey, this guy's been around forever and people, you know, generally have, you know, warm and fuzzy feelings about him. But it seems like your campaign is sensing on some vulnerabilities, like that approval rating doesn't seem accidental. When you talk about Grassley and his ability or lack of ability to deliver for the average Iowan, you know, what is he missing, you know, in his, you know, as he rounds out his, I don't know how many terms he's now been been in the Senate. He's been elected office since, uh, well, for 63 years. So he's been in the Senate since 1981. Uh, and in the House before that, and then in the Iowa State House before that. So his history is generational. And consequently, there's two things that are most bedraggling to him. Number one, the passage of time only goes to the right, and it keeps on going. So there's an unspoken issue about how long one person can can be on this earth and what the growing season for that until they uh, can no longer see when their policies that they that they implement are ever executed. And the other issue is, He's been drafting and line, uh, signing up for bills and going against bills since the beginning of time. So he has a he has a record when 
he did not step away from the endorsement of the Ku Klux Klan early on. And when the John Birchers said, we're all in on this guy. And when he, when he said, you know, we got to really, we got to get rid of bingo, no legalization of bingo. So he has that in his past, in his past that, that just show kind of where his moral authority is. And then the fact that as time goes on, he has taken the full-throated endorsement of Donald Trump, even when he knows the that uh, the former president has been guilty of how many? All seven of the deadly sins, repeatedly so, which really runs counter to <laughs> the very, very core and the very substance of an Iowan. The biggest issue here is that he has so badly broke with the fairness doctrine in terms of when Merrick Garland had the opportunity and should have been a Supreme Court justice because he had already been approved by the Senate for a lower lower judgeship, Chuck Grassley single-handedly, along with Mitch McConnell as a side boy, delayed his, his hearing, his nomination for 11 months. And yet when Amy Comey Barrett comes up in 26 days, even after 6 million, 6.5 million presidential votes have been cast, he slides her in under the wire. So we consequently have the most partisan Supreme Court we've ever had, going back to the 1930s, compliments of Chuck Grassley. It's as simple as that. How do you deal with an electorate? This is an electorate that I think in many ways people view as this kind of Obama-Trump electorate, which I know is simplifying it. When you talk to the average voter, how much is the either of those former presidents, but especially Trump, how much is that looming in this race versus you know a look ahead and sort of kitchen table issues? Well, so I was the state that gave us Jimmy Carter that introduced Barack Obama to the Democratic populace. We are also went eight points for Donald for Donald Trump. So we have we have counties that swing wildly. It is that large middle of the road, non-aligned, independent vote that really needs to be gathered together. And two to one, the independents are coming with us. The issues that be that are most upon their minds, I think I answer. They want education. They want health care. Uh, they want a more vivacious ag economy that's not monopolistically and vertically integrated that chase out the small farmers. We need to bring a new crop of farmers in the state of Iowa, desperately so. We want peace and less animus between the population. You know what I think is really interesting about the campaign that you've run is that while in many ways, what you just said, which is a a very uh, universal message and and I, I think the right one, that is more of what we would have expected from somebody running in Iowa, you know, 20 years ago or whatever. But what we wouldn't have expected is the other stuff you're doing, which is speaking very plainly about what you just mentioned there. You've been talking very plainly about uh, supporting the right to choose. You've been talking and and not just like when asked about it, like you've been out front making it an issue in this race in Iowa. And on top of that, you've been talking about things like making healthcare available to everybody. Whereas in past years, the expectation would have been that a candidate on the Democratic side in Iowa would have been triangulating on issues like that. But you're not doing that. And you're clearly making gains as a result. So as you go around and you talk to independent voters, for instance, clearly these issues are resonating with them as well. The the progressive position on these issues. I talk about women's right to choose as a human rights issue. However you view abortion, is rather secondary to human rights. And why would you compel, why would you impress upon others your sensibilities and take away their human right? You know, last night in Dubuque, 
with a resoundingly large audience, it was oftentimes men jumping up when I say, you know, it's this is about a women's right to choose. The men would jump up and clap. They, too, view it as an affront uh, on their wives and daughters and granddaughters. You must make it to a lot of places where people say, hey, I haven't I don't see enough politicians, Democratic politicians included, showing up and, and wanting to hear what I have to say. Is that true? And like what I know this is, you know, you're you work with J.D. Shulton, who's a friend of our podcast. This is a big thing for him is what should we be doing as Democrats to to show up and how should we be showing up for rural America? I get the sense that there's some frustration that the National Party has overlooked big parts of the country. Yeah. Well, Ronnie, absolutely. It's you know, we've walked away from our base. All the unions in the state of Iowa have endorsed me. But that's fine and good. But I want the rank and file not to have to be coerced into supporting me, but craving to support me because you have to answer what's most important with them. I think we we do that resoundingly well. Uh, you know, people have heard, I think J.D.'s been on the show, I want to say twice. Uh, J.D. is about to be a, a member of the state house uh, there in Iowa and will be an outstanding one. But my question is, have you had the opportunity to in-person see J.D. pitch? I have not. I've seen him on film. Oh, I've seen it. him on film. I, he's got a wicked movement in his fastball. I understand. And, it's unbelievable. And if, he, if he, he was if he was on the show right now, he would say, "Hey, Frank, and start pitch the thing. Defeat Chuck dot com. Pitch that." <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and I would that, so okay. So that's the pitch. Defeat Chuck dot com is where we want people to go. It's where they can learn more. Frankenforiowa.com, but uh, a donation site is defeatchuck.com. We're an interesting campaign. We don't take corporate PAC money. And uh, over well over 50% of the zip codes throughout the nation have in, uh, submitted money to our campaign, have, have, have uh, given donations. This is a good thing. So I appreciate people's donations to make it sure we stay online throughout the state, on TV and on radio. Uh, because my name recognition is the one thing that is most helpful in getting people, A, to vote for us, and B, to, uh, to send Chuck Grassley into retirement. As we mentioned uh, at the top, we are going to do a, a YouTube Live episode on Tuesday night. If you have particular races that you want our thoughts on or that you want us to make sure we follow as we're you know, seeing the election results come in and, uh, and broadcasting to you, let us know. 508-687-2589, 508-687-2589, or email us m54 at wondermedianetwork.com. As always, I'm at Jason Kander on Instagram and Twitter. Ravi is at Ravi M. Gupta on Twitter and Instagram. Eric Lynn is at Eric Lynn FL, like Eric Lynn, Florida, on Twitter. That's E-R-I-C-L-Y-N-N-F-L on Twitter. Admiral Mike Franken is at Franken for Iowa. It's F-R-A-N-K-E-N for Iowa on Twitter. And our show is at Majority54 on Twitter. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch, E.D. Allard, and Adeso Agbenile. Theme music provided by Kemet Coleman, and special thanks to Diana Kander. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. 
Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard Professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.